Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy across the board. Offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Rapunzel, a safe way to play and learn about financial markets for you and me. Like they say in Mission Control, start the clock. We're recording, so. Okay, ready? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the very first episode of the Windy City Historians podcast. Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. On this podcast, we will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Patrick has written several books on bridges and transportation. And Chris has done a couple books on Midway Airport, and he's a a well-known aviation historian. We started out as a club of like-minded historians. It's a kind of a get-together four times a year to just swap ideas about publishing. And research. And, and Chris had come up with this idea originally. He had had a group that was similar, the Midway Airport historians. Right. Yeah. We felt it was great in this era of the internet. It's, it's nice to have a face-to-face with people. It's also more fun. Well, and, and we were bemoaning the fact that there's these institutions that have a lot of the history and they're sometimes tough to get into. Maybe if we had a group, we could get in easier. Right. And then you went on uh, about the fact that there's a ton of history out there outside the institutions. That's right. It, because like in my case with Midway Airport, it was a living history. It hadn't been codified yet. It wasn't in the libraries yet. It, it resided in the men and women that worked the field and, and the people that filled the planes and whatnot. And so it's sort of a from the ground up history. Right? And we rolled it out on a bigger scale to a few more Chicago historians, and that became a nice uh, venue where we could share ideas on how to do research. And then it became a Facebook page. Daily, I think there's new people subscribing to it. See, every time we look at it, it goes up. And we we encourage you, the listener, to subscribe to it. It, It's free and it's fun. So that was the origin of Windy City Historians. And a friend of mine, Jill Hagginson, had really pushed me to do a podcast and a couple of people at different times have said I had have a good voice for podcasts and I didn't quite know what to do with that but she was so adamant recently that she kind of said well come on and so I started to put an outline together of well what if we cover kind of a decade of time roughly early Chicago up through about the 1930s and then you realize the decade of time there's a lot of damn decades because Chicago history goes back <laughs> 300 years well kind of thinking of like contemporary times like the 1800s then I Wonder, well, what would I call it? And of course, Windy City Historians came to mind, and I naturally I need to do it with Chris. And I, I didn't see that as any hardship. And no, because so, we, we talk, this is how we talk at Starbucks when we get together <laughs> we, over tea, which everybody makes fun about the fact yeah. that we're not having coffee. We're I, having you know, tea, folks. Too effeminate about tea or something, no, or British I mean, or something. We're, I don't we're, know. we're both Irish guys <laughs> whose grandmothers gave them tea. Well, if we'd had beer, it'd deteriorate too rapidly. So the conversation <laughs> stays pretty sharp. This exactly. Way. So you came up with an outline kind of going back to the beginnings of Chicago history. And and you came up with the concept and the idea of the series, which might be a dozen or so episodes, called Laying the Foundation. And I thought that was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. So, <laughs> so anyway, that worked really well because it laid the foundation on several levels because I felt like the reason for this podcast was so many people are fascinated by Chicago history. I think... Or new to it. Yes. And most of the stuff that we would cover in this laying the foundation was stories and the history of Chicago that were multiple generations removed from. And Patrick said, well, why don't we start at the very beginning? Let's start with the word Chicago. It's an Indian word. And if we're going to talk about the origin of the word Chicago, we got to talk to John Swenson. Right. I had discovered him in doing some research and the book Early Chicago by uh, Dr. Ulrich Donkers and uh, Jane Meredith, who co-authored with him. That book is an encyclopedia of early Chicago history from the beginning on up to 1835 when the Indians left. And Swenson contributes a couple articles and the entomology of the word Chicago. 
So we went to John Swenson's house and we set up these microphones at his dining room table. Which I still got to apologize. Thank God you kept John busy. I'm setting this stuff up for the first time and plugging it in and I can't get anything to record. And Chris is entertaining John and the two of them are going back and forth. Technical friends trying to get the thing to work. It it took me like 45 minutes to do. Now, you know, I can do it in about 10, 15 minutes, but in any event, we, we finally did get it recorded and we were just kind of amazed at what we learned. Well, we were amazed because again, we walked in there innocently thinking that we would talk to John about the origin of the word Chicago. And maybe the early explorers like Marquette yeah. and Joliet. And... The, the origin story of Chicago. Yeah. But we didn't realize that Swenson had spent 34 years puzzling over some key parts of Chicago history and had made some major discoveries. He basically hit us with a fire hose of history, as I related <laughs> to Chris and another gentleman a few weeks ago. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to end up having to interject in this interview because we yeah. usually let John talk. There's some major points that he kind of just passes by, but we're going to come back and interject. And we had no idea how to how to ask clarification questions at the time. We were still flabbergasted. Right. It's sort of like if you had learned that the Gettysburg Address was written by John Wilkes Booth. It was that kind of just <laughs> revelatory... History. That, that's pretty radical. Well, that is that's too radical. Well, let's that. Well, let's have John start to tell the story. What do you think? Let's I mean, start. That's, yes, that's the best bet. And it's a lot of information, but it's a lot of very fascinating information as well. And we we're breaking this into two podcasts. Where the first one is going to address who was the first European in Chicago, and then episode two we're going to talk about where is Chicago as far as the Indians were concerned. Welcome to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode one, Who Was First? So the next voice you will hear is John Swanson. What happened in history was the French were in the Chicago area. Joliet and Marquette were not the first. Right despite what our history books tell us. And Chicago isn't where it used to be. And so it's taken me 34 years to prove, and I can prove it in court where Chicago was, and it's still there. I'm John Swenson. I'm a retired lawyer, historian. I have been studying the early history of Chicago for 34 years and doing original research on the course of which I developed my motto, which is don't take yes for an answer. (laughs) Because what I found very early in my research is that everybody else is wrong. You were telling us earlier about someone's comment to you started you on this journey. Well, what happened was she was a neighbor of mine and they said, oh, I, we'd like you to join the Herb Society, and our unit is called the Wild Onion. It's a chapter of the Herb Society, and I said, oh, sure, I'll, I'll join, but what onion are we talking about here? Because there are a few native onions, alliums. And uh, she said, well, we really don't know, but we understand that Chicago is named for a wild onion. What else do you know? Well, she said, one of our members started to do some research on the etymology of Chicago, and she kind of gave up. Uh, I said, well, I'd like to have that file. So when when was that, John? What year? That was in 1984. Okay. They handed over her file, which she was going in the right direction, but she gave up before she found her destination. I took over, and 34 years later, I'm where she hoped to be. (laughs) Well, that's appropriate because we were talking uh, before you ran track at Dartmouth, so she started the relay and you got the handoff of the file and kept going. (laughs) In relay racing, you have to, the placement of the baton is, it has to be done just right. That's right. (laughs) Well, I started researching on the etymology of Chicago. It took me seven years. Very early in my research at the Newberry Library, I realized I'm going to have to be reading some of these old French 
manuscripts, which were generally compiled by Jesuit missionary priests. Yeah, okay. The Jesuits really, I have to admire the, the, the scholarship and the devotion in what they did. And they went along as chaplains and also basically to keep the eye of government on the traders to make sure that they give, didn't give liquor to the Indians mm. because that's what they did. It was usually tafia, which is a kind of a cheap rum. It's rum that hasn't seen an oak barrel. I see. Uh. It's cheap and it's drinkable, and you could still buy it, <laughs> but it's not like the good stuff from Bacardi. No. <laughs> and in the historical journals, I mean, I don't know if it's genetics or, or whatnot, but the, the Indians really had no resistance to alcohol. Absolutely. Just couldn't metabolize alcohol. And, yeah. and, and maybe growing up isolated in North America for thousands and thousands of years, I mean, it was never part of their culture. They didn't make it or for whatever reason. Like in human genetic history, lactose intolerance right. is the basic gene. And the lactose tolerance is a kind of a mutation that appeared in some people. Like Mediterranean people oftentimes are lactose intolerant, my wife being one of them. That's why they eat goat's cheese, feta, because they can't handle the, the cow's milk like the Northern Europeans can. Well, and the Native Americans, too, didn't have the resistance to the diseases. It mostly yeah. came from having livestock and and because yeah. and, they would eat game. They didn't have uh, domesticated animals, which brought a lot of diseases in Europe. The Columbia changed. They gave us syphilis, and we gave them measles and smallpox. <laughs> so, <laughs> what a trade. <laughs> but the, what we did to the Indians is, is something that's it's always bothered me. There's a couple different things that came together that allowed you to figure this out, right? You had the interest in horticulture, training as a lawyer to dig and research, but you also have some background in French language, too, as well as Native American language? Well, French was one of the languages that I studied at Dartmouth. Ah. And, uh, geez, I, I took Latin and German and Russian. And I very quickly, as I was doing my research, I found that I'd have to be reading French documents. So I dusted off my French. Right. I'm not real good at French, but at least I can stagger through a 17th century French okay. <laughs> and so was this going back to some of those uh, Jesuit documents? Because the Jesuits are pretty prevalent here then. The, the French in North America, of course, came through Quebec, and then they called it New France, Nouvelle France. Yeah. There were a few French, and Jesuits came in very early, because we're talking about like 1600. The French being businessmen, said, there are opportunities here. We're going to go out and get some beaver furs because there are ladies and gentlemen in France who need new hats, and you got to make the hats with beaver felt. Big money, beavers. I mean, if you could put a modern price range on it. Not quite that, Chris. The beaver fur made the best felt Oh, I see. for right. hats. For hats, right. Yeah, it's okay. The uh, mercury and, and the Mad Hatter and, and all that. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and, of course, the, the beaver and the lack thereof created a lot of animosity and war among the Indian tribes, which is a long, complicated story. So they realized that there was money to be made trading for furs. That was the economic engine. Yeah, to bring those riches back to the old world, right? Indeed. So they began to develop a, a fur trade and began going farther and farther west. And, of course, to make money in the process. <laughs> and a lot of money was made. The most literate people in right. New, New France were the Jesuit priests. Of course, part of their job usually was to learn the languages of an Indian nation so that they could become missionaries to that nation. To convert them to Oh, yes. Or, oh, yes. Yeah. You know, the, it was saving the heathen from <laughs> the flames of hell. But, <laughs> so the study of languages was really a priority. Gosh, when I turned up that 
dictionary, the Newberry, which it goes from Kaskaskia to French. And it's like 300 leaves. I oh, mean, wow. It's big. That's thorough. I paid to have it microfilmed. What's yeah. the name of that uh, dictionary? Well, it's, it's published uh, originally by a guy I know as a Kaskaskia French dictionary. I see, okay. It's a Jesuit production and was started mm-hmm. at Peoria in, I think it's like 1696. French for the first to record this, because otherwise the Native Americans just had an oral history. And- yeah, the, the Indians probably had some system of writing. People are not exactly certain what they did. Did the uh, Kaskaskian dialect, did it, is it like Eskimo, 33 words for snow? There's 33 words for the prairie or for deer? The Kaskaskia words probably relates to an insect that makes a sound by rubbing its legs together. Oh, I see. Kind of like a cicada? Cicada, I think. Yeah. But not the 17-year-old cicadas. I oh, right, think. right. Because the etymology probably is something to do Cascas, you know, there's a, that's an emphatic or a repetitive. So anyhow, I hear them. They tune up at dusk. See, because that goes way back. When I was a little kid, I had an uncle. He was the widower of my mother's older sister. So I called him Uncle Bill. And he had a big ranch out in Colorado. He came to visit us in Milwaukee. And I was like six years old. And Uncle Bill was really bald. So <laughs> as a little kid, you know, I asked him, what happened to your hair? He said, the Indians scalped me. Oh, At my age, something in me said, you know, I, I just can't. Why would an Indian do that? He says, I can't say this. Yeah. The only good Indian is, you, right. know, you know. So at that point... I decided I wanted to learn something about Indians because in a previous life, I think I was. So my mom took me to a bookstore and I bought this little handbook of different Indian tribes. They had pictures of them, you know. Yeah. And from that on, I just kind of paid attention. Growing up, I lived in Milwaukee and Sheboygan, which of course are Indian, Indian names. names. Right. As Milwaukee means pleasant place and Sheboygan refers to the reef that causes shipwrecks. Very early, I became interested in Indians and also became interested in etymology of words. My mother graduated from Smith and took a course in what was then called philology, now it's linguistics. And I remember when I was a kid, I reading the Milwaukee Journal and mentioned uh, somebody with a name. And I said, I said, what kind of a name? She said, that's a Lithuanian name. Wow. And she she was right. Yeah. And, you know, so I've been kind of curious about word origins. So that, of course, that ultimately led to Chicago. And, and, that's and here we are. Yes. The traditional history for Chicago. Don't put ketchup on a hot dog? No, no, no. I put ketchup on a hot dog. Well, I'm you're from Ohio. I I like ketchup and mustard. But Buckeyes anyway, or do weird things. Probably so. We should recap. The exploration into the Great Lakes by the French. Champlain is one of the big explorers for the French. In 1603, he comes to New France, founds the city of Quebec, and goes as far west as the lower part of Lake Huron. Of course, he had Lake Champlain named after him. And those people who enjoy skiing and leaf peeping, Samuel de Champlain also named Vermont. Oh, did not know that. Très bien. Leaf peeping, that's a thing? Yeah, that's a thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so then after Champlain comes Jean Nicolet. The traditional interpretation of his explorations are that he makes it up to the Straits of Mackinac and Lake Michigan in 1634, and down into Green Bay and explores what is now known as Wisconsin. And then 40 years after Nicolette, you have Father Marquette and Louis Joliet, who are the founding fathers. Yes, Marquette and Joliet are traditionally held up as the first Europeans to pass through Chicago. 
1673. Right, that's where they went from the Great Lakes, primarily through Wisconsin to the Mississippi, I think as far as Arkansas, Patrick? Yes, and that's when they saw signs of the Spanish. Right. And, of course, the French and the Spanish weren't getting along at that point, so they turned north. And on their way back, the legend is that they meet some friendly Indians who tell them of a shortcut. Right, that it's going to be easier to paddle up the Illinois River, which is more placid than the Mississippi, so there's less current. They can go through to Des Plaines to the Chicago Portage to Mud Lake, and then that connects with the Chicago River and then Lake Michigan north back to St. Ignace for Marquette or Montreal for Joliet. Right. So this is the established history that the portage was basically where the the Illinois-Michigan Canal is today. Which has been replaced by the Sanitary Canal, which reversed the Chicago River in 1900. Right. So this follows basically the Stevenson Expressway. The opening to Lake Michigan would be basically Michigan Avenue and Wacker. Yes. And Fort Dearborn was placed there on the south side of the river. And Father Marquette wintered over about Damon Avenue in the Chicago River. 1674-75. That's right. He returned to visit the Illinois Indians. And there's a portage sculpture near Harlem Avenue. And between 1682 and 1687, LaSalle and his men on various expeditions passed through Chicago. After LaSalle's murder, his right-hand man, Henri Jutel, chronicles the return of that expedition to Canada passing through Chicago in 1687-1688. And any serious student of Chicago history will tell you that this is the accepted history of the portage. Swenson is going to flip this traditional story on its head. With that in mind, let's go back to the interview. Well, like a show and plan, for instance... He got here right after 1600, spent the fall and winter 1615-16 with the Hurons Mm -hmm. who had declared war on the Iroquois. He traveled with the Huron, and at one point he got as far as the eastern shore of Lake Huron. Right, right. And spent the following winter in the head village of the Hurons, which would be roughly near Detroit, mm. at the entrance to Lake Huron. Yeah, uh, Lake St. Clair and right yeah, around area. Around there, yeah. yeah. So he got a lot of geographic information, which is reflected in a couple of the maps that he drew. And his first map, dated to 1616, shows most of the Great Lakes, and it shows part of Lake Michigan. The outlines of this map are vague. It looks like it was basically an Indian map, or was drawn sitting at the elbow of Indians who had been here. Ah, right. And so it's a highly schematic map, but it does hit on the existence of Mm -hmm. a big freshwater lake. Very early in my research, within the first year or so, I found the Jutel account. Right. And it was again um, LaSalle's. Uh, he was LaSalle's right hand man. Yeah. And I actually got a microfilm of the manuscript of the Jutel narrative. Oh, uh, the so, original in French? Yeah, I, I could. I have it. I could show you ah, the microfilm. It wouldn't help okay. me, though. I don't read French, so. <laughs> we all have our faults. Uh, yeah, exactly. But anyhow, Jutel visits Chicago twice. And remember, he'd been with LaSalle for several years. Yeah. From 1684 to 1687, and that's when LaSalle was bushwhacked. See, he stiffed everybody. (laughs) And that was the, at least the ostensible reason for desertions. And ultimately, his murder, out by Nacogdoches. And the guy that killed him with a shot between the eyes was apparently a disappointed investor. The moral to that story is, 
don't go out in the woods with somebody that you owe a lot of money to. <laughs> I learned that watching The Sopranos. <laughs> Joutel describes the landscape at and around this place he called Chicago. Because he heard LaSalle talking about Chicago because, remember, LaSalle had a fort built, he says, at the portage of Chicago. Mm -hmm. It was fairly near it. In the fall of 1687, Jutel gets to this place, early October maybe. He says, well, they call it Chicago because of the wild garlic that grows here. Mm -hmm. But it's a spring ephemeral, so you couldn't find this plant unless you knew what to look for. You might see the flower stalk with a few seeds on it. They came back in the spring, and so they're camping there at this place called Chicago. And as you tell, again, he describes it, describes the terrain and the, the streams and so forth. Jutel is the one that says that means this Aïe Sauvage. Mm -hmm. And he describes it as ramps. Yeah. And I got some growing up in my... John Swanson at this point is gesturing towards his beautiful garden behind his house. It took me seven years to research the etymology. Yeah. I mean, I figured out Chicago is an Indian word found in Algonquian languages. The basic word is skunk, but it also refers to a plant that in Appalachia is called ramps. The French called it wild garlic. Yeah. And ramps, horticulturally, is what kind of plant exactly? The botanical name is Allium trichocum, which means three seeds. But it's the same genus as garlic and onions and, okay. and leeks and chives and all that stuff. And what's the growing season, John? Well, ramps is a understory spring ephemeral, and it grows before the leaf canopy fills in. Oh. So when the leaf canopy is filled in, the leaves will just wither and die. So that would be uh, April, perhaps? Uh, yeah, in Cook County, it would be like late April. Botanically, it would be a place you would expect to find ramps. And if you find a patch of this, and there's still forest preserves that have this, you will usually also find skunk cabbage growing nearby, which is edible at that point, by the way. So I could never figure out exactly where this place was. Jutel is called Chicago. 34 years later, I know. The word Chicago is with an A, right? Well, the word would be, the Indians would pronounce it Chicago with a sound at the end. That's kind of how my Southside cousins say it. So they, <laughs> they've been right all along. Chicago. Southsiders are usually right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting that as a lawyer, you're training, documents are very important in the law. Yeah. You use that in your research. Yeah. And yeah. This is a lawyer looking at history, yeah. not may, maybe someone else would miss it because it's you're looking yeah, for yeah. the evidence. Well, and a, and a linguist. Well, and, well, yes. Well, yeah. And my attitude toward any document is, okay, what is this guy trying to tell us? Right. Mm -hmm. And since he didn't write for a living, it's probably very badly written. Right. So you have to kind of put yourself in his shoes. What is he trying to say? He's writing in a context, and you have to kind of, if you can, try to figure out the context. What's his advice? Who are, who are the people that he knows? Mm. And, and who's, also, he, who's well, his well, audience, right? Well, and too. also, I mean, as a lawyer, I'd say, well, what kind of a witness would this guy make? Oh, right, right. right? Sure, yeah. Is he going to be a good witness? Okay, would I put him on as my witness, or how would I cross-examine him? <laughs> right. And as you said, Patrick, who's he writing to? If he's writing bad news to his boss, yeah, is he, how's he going to couch it? Yeah, uh, you know. Well, and then you see all these trade records. They meet the hearsay exception because hearsay witness testimony ordinarily, generally, isn't admissible. But one of the exceptions is the ordinary course of business, where is probably going to be admissible because the person that made the record would have no reason to lie. Right, those ledger books that the traders kept. Sure. Yeah, and, and the traders. There's usually money changing hands. Well, they had a, they had an investor and... back in Canada. Yeah. 
like the guy that hired Pointe de Sable, his Jean Auriat was at that time was the wealthiest man in Montreal. Yeah. Okay, so this is a big event. He's Rockefeller. Okay. Yeah. You're going to tell him, you know. <laughs> I don't want to hear just good news. I want to hear what happened. Yeah. You don't want to get on the wrong side of that guy. Yeah, because uh, if you screw him, your employment history is mostly behind you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the way of putting it. So Jean Nicolette came to New France in 1618. So he would have been about 20 years old at that point. His job was to live with the Indians and learn their languages. So he learned Algonquian languages and Huron languages. Well, that was preparation for the fur trade, typically, right? They would throw you into the Indians and you've survived or you didn't, but you'd learn their customs and language. That's right. It was pretty harsh. You're almost indentured servant. Yeah, yeah. You had to live with the Indians to to learn their culture. Yeah. And so Jean Nicolette spent quite a bit of time with various Indian people. So he was the official interpreter for the Company of New France because then Canada was basically owned by a company. The Hurons were basically at war with the, they called the Winnebago. That's an Algonquian word. And it means something like fragrant water. It, rem- it would be like salt water, ocean water, okay. as opposed to fresh water. So these two big Indian nations were at war with each other. And, of course, that was bad for business. Oh, right. For, for a Frenchman. Trade, for you sure. know, right. Yeah. Right. They wanted their clients to collect the furs, not scalps. Yeah. Because... You can't Scouts, make you can't make hats out of that. You got well, it. You got <laughs> at it. Least, at least not fashionable ones that people will pay for, right? Th- th- that's right. <laughs> the, 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 if you were a big shot warrior, you would hang a scalp on your belt. But no, so it was bad for business. So Jean Nicolette was assigned by the Company of New France, which was, as I say, Canada was, was still own, was owned by a, a company. So he was sent out to make peace between the. Winnebago, and the Huron. So he left the Huron village, somewhere near Detroit probably, Mm -hmm. and they traveled up Lake Huron and then through the Straits of Mackinac and then down Lake Michigan. And they got over to Green Bay, right? That's the traditional interpretation. And there's statues to him in Green Bay. Well, and there's the Nicolette National Forest right. and all of this and that. There's all those Nicolette banks up north. Well, he, he was there, but <laughs> that wasn't his destination. My and this God, is where he, you're varying with the traditional history. No, this is where traditional history quit looking. Now, when the French got here in Chicago in 1673... And that's Marquette and Joliet. Yeah, and they had information. Joliet and Marquette say in their surviving records, which are not many, that in preparation for their voyage, they did a lot of research in figuring out where the Indians lived, what the rivers were like, what Indian tribes they would encounter, and so forth. They made themselves a map. Which only makes sense if you're going to take an expedition. You want to collect as much information ahead of time as you can, right? You got to, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any road will lead you there. (laughs) (laughs) This map that I mentioned, which is the Taunton map, because it was found in a British archive in the city of Taunton in England. How it got there, we don't know. And this was the research they did before they left. Yes. Right. Yes. They probably had access to this map, which would have been in a Jesuit office. Yeah. The principal source of information on this was Jean Nicolette. I was talking to uh, Robert Birmingham. He's the retired state archaeologist of Wisconsin. Wrote this authoritative book on the Indian mounds. Yeah. 
he said, oh, by the way, there's an article about Chicago by Robert Hall, an archaeologist who says that Nicolette actually wound up at Chicago, not at Green Bay. He said, wait a minute. I'll hang up and I'll call you back when I have the citation. <laughs> so he calls me and he gives me his citation and he says, this is it. So bingo. So I, I went online and I found a, co- a good copy of the book and bought it because it's a, just one essay in a book of archaeological stuff. And there it is. I finally got an earlier version of this paper in which he mentions the Jesuit relations that Nicolette met the Potawatomi in the Illinois. Now, that's why you ignore evidence at your peril. Holy smoke, it was published in 1640. The clues are, number one, the report that Nicolette made to Father Vimont. And the very terrain with forests and marshes and swamps and rivers and prairies, lots of trees. And the clue, of course, was maple trees, which make maple syrup, which... Jutel made in 1687 at the place called Chicago. Ah, and Jutel was the chronicler for LaSalle. That's correct. Right. See, basically, when you're on Lake Michigan, there are two ways to get onto the Illinois River Yeah. from Lake Michigan. See, the northern route from the lake to the Des Plaines was about 13 miles. You say the northern route, is that... You mean through Chicago River? That's from the Michigan Avenue Bridge. Okay. What is now called the Chicago River. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's the northern route. And basically it was a seasonal route, but there were no Indians along it, so there was no business. And frankly, the Des Plaines River was, most of the year was a series of puddles connected by limestone rock. It was not a super highway. We have today, because of all the dredging, we have first the I&M Canal and then the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. But in those days, it was a pretty iffy route. Because the Chicago River didn't have much water in it and didn't have much current, so this huge sandbar was built up at the mouth of the river, which it ran from, let's say, the Michigan Avenue Bridge down to about Randolph Street. Yeah. The river itself was pretty well blocked, and you had to go by canoe, really. Yeah, and really kind of seek it out, because if you're any any distance offshore, you might not even see the, the mouth of the river. Yeah, yeah, that was the problem. And, of course, from Lake Michigan, you could see all the way to the, to the Des Plaines River, which was your destination, because you wanted to go from, say, the Michigan Avenue Bridge out to the Des Plaines River at Summit. So that was the traditional Chicago portage route. That divide is extremely subtle, and it's almost at the Des Plaines River. Mm-hmm. Very subtle thing. And the lake there apparently straddles that. What they called Mud the, Lake. The, yeah. Well, the Yankees call it Mud Lake. Yeah. I mean, the French call it the Oak Point Lake because the French were better at naming things than the Americans were. (laughs) (laughs) But it it wasn't where the Indians lived. And that's really the key to understanding the early history is where did the Indians live? Because there's no archaeological site along what we call the Chicago River. Patrick, we should break in here just to state that when John Swenson says no archaeological trace, what he means is there was no evidence of habitation along the northern portage. Right. Indians didn't settle along that northern route by the, say, Michigan Avenue Bridge or the Chicago River. Because it was uninhabitable from a point of view, there was no trees. It was open land. There were flooding issues. Flooding, yeah. So it was very unattractive. So there were no permanent settlements or trace of those in the area where the city of Chicago is today. And as we will discover, the southern portage was where the Indians actually lived. Right. Okay. The main reason is that the terrain was was basically a totally featureless prairie. Yeah. So it was a lot of grass, but no trees, very few animals, 
how are you going to make a living in terrain like that? And then every spring, the Des Plaines River would overflow and flood the whole area. So it'd well, be very swampy you're not and muddy. You're and... not, yeah, you're not going to live there. Yeah, because you'd be flooded out of your homes then, potentially, yeah, if you were yeah, living there. Yeah, yeah, and then, of course, uh, if you could and yourself. then historians say, well, LaSalle built a fort here because LaSalle had a fort built, he says, at the portage of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Well, come on now. You don't have to be much of a soldier to figure out that you're not <laughs> going to build a fort in a place where it's going to flood regularly. Right. Because there was another route, which is about 50 miles. And the southern route was a little bit more dependable, and that's where the Indians lived mm-hmm. because of the varied terrain, and they would live near woods. That, yeah. Well, that's where the firewood was. Okay. Yeah, in the cold winters. You know. Well, and you've you got to make a fire. And right. You're, if you're out on a prairie, I mean, what are you going to burn, grass? Well, right. that's not much of a fire. And if you think about it, I mean, we're like that today. Home Depot is is our woods right i mean we need to be near a supply that's right so humans don't change that much that's right the rivers that we're talking about here if you're coming from lake michigan there was a big harbor the french call it the the chicago bay ah it was the mouth of what we call the little calumet river from government surveys which are the our best record of it the the mouth of the river was maybe a quarter mile wide. And Joliet commented on it in 1673. He said, this harbor could shelter a lot of ships, not canoes, ships. And the river is full of fish, like catfish and sturgeon and so forth, and all the animals come here. It's a long, complicated story, but I finally found the right documents. I think the significance of this map is the only river entering Lake Michigan is at the south end, and that's the traditional French description of the Illinois River system is at the south end of Lake Michigan. There's this big river that leads into the Illinois Right, which would be the Little Calumet, not the Chicago River. Right, yeah. Right. There are two different reports that Jean-Nicolette made to Father Vimeau, one in 1640 the other in 1642, because what Nicolette says, he went past the Menominee, who were up around Green Bay, to get to where the Winnebago were. Now, Lake Michigan, at about this time, was named really for the Winnebago, because they were the big, yeah, the big influence. And- at that time. Yeah. And also known as Ho-Chunk? Is that Ho-Chunk is, yeah. was their name for themselves. Okay. Winnebago is an Algonquian word, and it refers to salt water, which smells different ah, from fresh water. Right. Of course, one of the meanings is stinking water. Lake Michigan, you see, for a time was called Lake Illinois. First it was I've called... I've seen that on some of the maps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was first it was the Lake the Puon, which is the Winnebago. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, first it's the Grand Lac, or or the the seawater lake, uh, but then or freshwater lake, but then it becomes the Lake of Puan, then becomes the, the Lake of the Illinois, and then Lake Michigan, and on some maps like this one here, it's Lake Illinois or Lake Michigan. Mm. So that's the the progression of the of, of the names as different people became more important. So mm-hmm. the French gave the Winnebago the name of Puan, P-U-A-N-S, which means stinkers. <laughs> <laughs> Not a nice thing to do to an Indian. But, but no. at the same time, they were probably looking for that passage, uh, that Northwest Passage, right? W- too. That fits in here, Pat, because... But let me finish with the Nicolette thing, because in these reports... There are some other things that have been ignored that are actually very important because the first French visit to Illinois was Jean Nicolette. My conviction is he came out to Lake Michigan in the 1620s, not 1634, not. 
1634, with seven Huron Indians who knew where they were going because his assignment as the interpreter for the company that owned Canada was to arrange peace between the Ho-Chunk, or Winnebago, and the Hurons. And the Indians that met him on the shore of Lake Michigan were Ho-Chunk. The standard histories say he met these people at Green Bay. He traveled up the Fox River to, oh, I don't know, Appleton, someplace like that. And that's where he met these people. I don't think so. The guy who wrote the history of Nicoletta, a man by the name of Butterfield, published back in 1881, cooked up this whole story about how Nicolette went to Green Bay and the robe that he wore was from China. Well, it's a long story. It has to, there's a matter of a misunderstanding of a French word, which we won't get into. But anyhow, I think that Nicolette got probably to what we call Calumet Harbor. Ah. Calumet was not always the name of the river. It was originally, well, it had two Indian names. One name meant Crooked River, and the other meant something like Deep River. I found an old map of dated in the 1860s of the Chicago area, and it says that the Calumet River is 14 foot deep from Calumet Harbor to Blue Island. Mm. So that's a real advantage for yeah. shipping. Yeah, well, you could you could take a very large canoe through there, no problem. Have you could take a sailboat. Yeah. You could take a sailing yeah. ship, like the Griffin. So remember, this is a huge harbor. Yeah. This is what they call the Bay, Chicago Bay. Chicago Bay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was a really a pretty good-sized lake, but it was, you know, it was yeah. an estuary. But anyhow, so he got to Calumet Harbor. He was traveling with seven Huron, mm-hmm. and these guys had, were obviously pretty good travelers because they knew how to get here. So he sent one of these Hurons two days' journey to tell the people that that he was here. So they sent back a, a group of, of their young men to carry all of his equipment and baggage. He takes this big river, and they follow that southern route, and he goes to this place where there are four or 5,000 Indians from all different tribes that came in to meet this man, this miraculous man with thunder in his hands. Because he had pistols and right. fired them. And he was wearing a fancy robe. Uh, the real robe he was wearing was uh, the color of fresh meat. In French, it would be Dama Incarnata. And the best evidence of that is number one, his uh, Nicolette's documents, some the documents of a mission, another missionary by the name of Sagar, who actually brought into the upper country the robe that Nicolette is wearing. And uh, it, so it was read, it was given to Sagar, this missionary, in Paris by the Queen of France. The Indians saw it and said to this missionary, well, gee, if we can't fly your, your robe, your chasuble, as a kind of a banner of our war party, how about that other one that was brought here as a gift from the queen? The robe that Nicolette wore in about 1628 was the robe that was a gift by the queen to Sagar in 1624. So Sagar and Nicolette knew each other. They were in the back country together where it got pretty boring and where you got to know a few people very well. In the process, Nicolette did some exploring. He says he met many people, many nations. He met them in their own villages, including the Potawatomi and the Illinois. That isn't in your standard histories. 
as I say, you ignore evidence at your peril. Yeah. Remember Robert Hall figured out a, a few years ago, he's dead now, but he said Nicolette probably visited the Chicago area mm. and was on the Illinois River. Then he's, of course, widely poo-pooed because he disagrees with everybody. Well, Right, because everybody he, wants to say it's Marquette and Joliet who first... Well, the standard interpretation is Nicolette was up by Green Bay, yeah. maybe as far as, let's say, Appleton. Right. Mm-hmm. <sighs> He's up in Cheeseland. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's true. But he, he talks about meeting the Potawatomi in the Illinois. They weren't that far north, They were in the Illinois country. Yeah. He came much farther south yeah. because he, he says he met the Menominee and then he went beyond the Menominee. And then he met these other people. Do, do you think he did that portage down through Lake Calumet and the ri- various rivers you talked about? Well, he had to. Okay. He had to because <clears throat> you go the, the, across the, the, the Chicago portage at Madison, yeah. you get into Hickory Creek, then it's about 18 miles, something like that, into the Des Plaines River, and then you go down the Des Plaines Lake about 12 miles, and you're at the Forks, okay. where you, you join the Kankakee, and then it becomes the Illinois River. Yeah. And there was, there was always a, a, a village at the Forks. Nicolette probably visited the Chicago area mm. and was on the Illinois River. Yeah. Down to their main village, the miraculous man, the man with thunder in his hands, which I think was the big village at Starved Rock. Oh, sure. Two days journey. Is it because of, would you say because of boosters? I mean, you're from Wisconsin. Is it the boosters of Green Bay? Nicolette is their guy and Marquette is the Illinois, Chicago guy? Well, Buddha, you know, jingoism has a good good deal of uh, influence here, but it's basically, I've got the answer so this is it. Yeah, we're done. On to the next yeah. thing. But so never that's, take yes that's for why an answer. My motto is never, <laughs> don't take yes for an answer because you got to keep going. And holy smoke, in either the 1640 or the 42 relation, people, they, re- they read and then they find something that they like and that is a fact and maybe it is. And so that's where they stop reading. If they read another couple more lines past the Menominees, they'd see, holy smoke, the Sioux, the Assiniboine, the Potawatomi, and the Illinois. Yeah. The, these are the Indians that I met, and I met them in their villages. Okay, it's Patrick and Chris back in the studio. Oh, my God, Chris. <laughs> Swenson just dropped a, a like a historic bomb yeah. on us. Yeah, we are concussed. So he's saying that Nicolette was through the Illinois River. He was in this area. About 45 years before Marquette and Joliet came to the reach. And that is huge because that goes back to Chicago's identity. We shouldn't identify ourselves as much with Marquette and Joliet. It should be Nicolette. And... Also, that the portage that he used was not the portage that we know that goes along the Michigan Avenue. The Northern and, Portage. And the Michigan Avenue Bridge. Which right. is the one that historians from... Always claimed. The 19th century claimed that was... Tra- traditionally, that was the origins of Chicago, that portage, Mud Lake, yeah. the I&M Canal, the Sanitary and Chip Canal that reversed the river, founded on Marquette and Joliet. It, blow, it blows my mind. I struggle yeah. to speak. It kind of blows my mind. Wait we're, a minute. We're looking in the wrong spot. This And this history that I've known since I've come to Chicago and started to absorb things and learn more is wrong. It is wrong. But then I still didn't have the location of this place called Chicago. Mm. Meaning where the Indian Indian village was and the tribes. 
Well, is that what you're saying? where the place was called Chicago. Okay. The place which was Jutel's objective. Mm. The place where it didn't flood. Well, no. Okay. This this is the reason it took me a long time to yeah, find it. Yeah, this word is batted around Chicago. Jutel describes the landscape. He says there's a river and you're at the headwaters and then you got a lot of little streams that are forming the river and then you have the portage and then there's another river on the other side and that didn't fit the the northern river. Yeah, the Chicago River portage. Because what you've got here is as a result of the glaciers you have a, a very subtle continental divide mm-hmm. that runs through the Chicago area. Yeah, separating the Great Lakes and the Mississippi watershed. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we owe a debt to Father Marquette yeah. because he's the guy. In his report, you can figure out, if you know where the portage was, Yeah, Father Marquette could tell you where he was, and that was the place the Indians called Chicago. So, Patrick, a lot of information to process. Oh, my God. Chris is like getting hit with a fire hose of history from the master. I'm still trying to take it all in. Yeah, this is remarkable, Patrick. Again, there's so much to unpack in this episode that I don't even know where to begin. Well, John has been thinking about this for 34 years, and he's got so many layers sifting through the different accounts and the information. The layers and nuances are just natural to him, and and we have no idea where we're going. We're stumbling around like a couple of blind historians coming into this because we know what the traditional history is, but he's laid out this whole new environment that we don't even understand. Yeah, we were struck dumb, as the listeners can hear, by our <laughs> inane questions. 300 years of Chicago history flipped on its head. Let's just recap then. Jean Nicolette was the first European to visit Chicago. Who was first? Well, the answer is Nicolette. Nicolette. Jean Nicolette. Was here in the Illinois country in 1628 or 1629. Which is about 45 years before Marquette and Joliet came to the region. According to those Jesuit relations. So relations. Is, that's it, right. I like, French I like, is terrible. I I like that French version. Came through the Chicago area. It wasn't Marquette and Joliet. Right. They came 40 years later. Forget Marquette and Joliet. And Nicolette is honored by his visit to this area by having half a street named after him. That's it? Yeah. Half a street? Northwest side of Chicago. I mean, everything's associated in Chicago with Marquette and Joliet. And again, history was taught that the Northern Portage, the Michigan Avenue Bridgeway, was the way that they came. And Swenson demonstrates clearly that was not the case. The descriptions did not matched the northern route. Yeah. That's what bothered Swenson. That's huge. We all talked about the Continental Divide and the portage, so there's now a southern portage that we didn't even consider for most of the history. I mean, Assumptions were made it was a northern portage. The southern route was where people lived. It's where trade occurred. And so that made sense. If you're a French trader, you want to go where the people are. You want to be with the Indians and right. trade. And it's where the wood was. There was at least some high ground where there were consistent villages. Right. As plus, if you run out of supplies, you can trade right. for what you need. And so that tells us Nicolette. And Marquette and Joliet may never have come through what we now know as downtown Chicago and past the Michigan Avenue Bridge. I think clearly they didn't. Wow. The Indians they wanted to visit did not live along it. Here being that northern route. That's huge. How do you identify as a Chicagoan your early history? Um, the history that's been written since has based been on wrong. That, yeah, it's all wrong. It's all wrong. Man. And let's also <laughs> stress, folks, again, John Swenson's an attorney. Oh, he lays it out for us. And he has the documents. It's, it's not just a theory. So written in the French. And by the way, folks, I wrote a book on Midway Airport, and I quote LaSalle in my intro, and I talk about how he's referring to our portage the northern portage. Right. So I'm wrong. The route past Michigan Avenue yeah. and the Michigan I, Avenue Bridge. I, I'm, I'm clearly wrong. My book is wrong. My book, too. Chicago River Bridges has a prominent map of 
what we know as the Chicago Portage, which was the northern route now, which really wasn't used by Marquette and Joliet. Right. So we have egg on our faces. Yes. Right. But we're not alone. Everybody who studies or teaches Chicago history has been teaching it wrong. (laughs) But that doesn't mean things can't be corrected. And in episode two, Patrick, we learn where this place called Chicago is. It's actually a place that the Indians called Chicago. A place? What's that about? Right. We thought it was a wild onion. Well, right. right. So it's beyond the entomology. It's actually a place. Now he's saying it's a place. I mean, what's... I I can't wait to hear the second episode. And also, what's ironic is the first episode changes Chicago history. And the second episode will make Chicago history because we find the origins of the place. What Jutel refers to, where Marquette was visiting, John Swenson will tell us where this place is, Chicago. It's amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next episode. I hope you've enjoyed episode one called Who Was First? And hopefully you'll tune in to episode two, Finding the Place Called Chicago. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studio. And special thanks to Jill Hugginson for the idea and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.